action inquiry has allowed us to model a new approach to governance while exploring what the future might look like. And in trying to look at that new model, we've had to start by transforming ourselves. This is the Hidden Power Podcast, where we are interested in how the world works, how it doesn't work, and how to get it working better. We are your hosts, Ed Straw, my co-host and guest in episode one, and me, Philip Tottenham. In each episode, we hear from people working at the leading edge of where governance is attempting to bring about positive change, who have found themselves stepping back to look at the system in which they operate. In this episode, Julian Corner on authorising change at ground level. Julian is a radical thinker and prolific writer, and as former head of the Crime Strategy Unit at the Home Office and current chief executive of Lankelly Chase, the philanthropic foundation, is in an authoritative position to offer insight on governance and change. Here he is, speaking at the launch of Ed's book back in April 2020. Thank you very much, and just to add my congratulations on the book, um, much-needed orientation and brain food. It's uh, this uh, strange time we're living in, uh, incredibly timely. Lankelly Chase is a philanthropic foundation, and we have a long track record of trying to uh, get money to small NGOs supporting the most marginalized in society, people who face combinations of drug misuse, mental illness, violence, um, and homelessness. And we reached the conclusion a number of years ago that a failed governance model was at the heart of these problems continuing. I could characterize it as a linear, top-down, and siloed governance model that attempts to deliver specified interventions to a specified group for a specified outcome. And the results are well known to many of us. Those with the most complex problems are excluded. Um, people are othered and labeled. It creates dependency. It focuses us on personal deficits, not on social injustice. And it has created a, a system of care, which for many is actually a system of oppression with a a number of systems that privilege their own rules uh, rather than the value of human care. So that's the governance model. And in trying to shift to a new model, it's all feeling very stuck and hopeless, not least because our governance systems are actually starting to accelerate. We have delivery and commissioning uh, strategies which are seeking better outcomes for scarcer resources through greater efficiencies and more and more complicated methods of measuring and funding impacts, all measures which are actually reinforcing the, the top-down siloed linear model. Our dream is of a sustainable, self-regulating system with well-being, an abundance of care, and justice at its heart. And our challenge is that, that this would require the deconstruction of most of the governance systems and architecture that we have in place. And added to that, we have no clear model of what would replace it other than the broad principles that I've outlined and no idea of what institutions, roles or resourcing it would 
Fine. In terms of what this has required of us at Lankelly Chase, we realized that it required us to transform our own governance model, to move from linear models of funding programs to a process of action inquiry. And the action inquiry model has allowed us to ask bigger, harder questions while taking plausible action. It's removed from us the need to know already what the solution is or to have the whole answer. And it has allowed us and the people that we work with, the people that we fund, to navigate the uncertainty, to reveal what there is to be revealed, to adapt strategies and connect new things together. In other words, it has allowed for an honesty to emerge and indeed it has allowed a space for emergence. And it has created for us an ability to form a community of fellow inquirers who can come together to share dreams and uncertainties and themselves start to form a self-regulating governance model. And this has taken us into investing in different things. Typically, foundations invest in organizations as the main vehicle for change. We've started to invest heavily in places because that allows us to create a boundary around the system in which we're intervening. But it's also allowed us to start growing critical social learning systems in places that bring more and more perspectives together and that put learning rather than outcomes and delivery at the heart of the work. We've shifted to investing in networks because that creates a fluidity outside of organizational hierarchies and allows us to bring more and more actors together to form a critical mass and again, creating some form of self-regulating model and we've shifted to funding capabilities, uh, helping to create shared language, new, new methodologies and models, new space to look afresh at the problem. So Action Inquiry has allowed us to model a new approach to governance while exploring what the future might look like. And in trying to look at that new model, we've had to start by transforming ourselves. The innovations that I'm describing tend to be more innovations of mindset and behavior than necessarily the social innovations that we're used to, where people try and provide models and solutions to social problems. And in a sense, that is an advantage in this situation because social innovations have proved remarkably hard to scale. They tend to sort of evaporate like morning dew on contact with uh, the reality of, of our system, current systems of governance. Whereas what we're trying to get at is something fundamental in the way that we think and act. And actually, I think we can start to build alliances at scale in a way that have been much, much harder to do when we focused on products, on, on scaling things. What it would require though, is more of an authorizing environment from government to start understanding that the, the capabilities that are needed exist in, in the way people act rather than just in what they do, in the way that they think. And it's quite possible that the current crisis is going to create uh, more of an opening for that.
we have an incredibly mechanistic, risk-averse set of governance arrangements in the, in the UK, which are not based on on human value uh, relationships or values of care. They're based on compliance, regulation, value for money, and many more mechanistic measures of performance. And I think what we have to start doing is creating the spaces where the different kind of value that can emerge from alternative governance systems can start to be demonstrated and felt. I have a concern that these themselves will become marginal innovations, that large long-term systems will look across them at them and try to co-opt them to their own ends. And so we in philanthropy, but also more widely, have a obligation to start long-term processes of shifting power towards those who, in all justice, have a right to be part of those governance processes and who, frankly, would enact them more effectively and more in the interests of those whom they serve. But that is a long-term push because there is a lot to, to deconstruct. He uses these ideas of mechanistic, and I suppose to some extent we understand that meaning systematic. Yeah. I think it's also, you know, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but there is a place for a systematic way of thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, it, I mean, if you want to issue a driving license, it's a pretty systematic process and, yeah, use right. the systematic. But when he talks about the mechanistic thinking that, that he finds himself up against in government... He's talking yeah. about this as a prevailing mindset. Yeah, that, that, that's the problem. That, yeah, the, the systematic dominates everything. If you try and address a problem that is complex and difficult with a systematic solution, it won't succeed. You need a systemic. And, and the way I've characterized it is if you think about picking up a liquid Mm. and you think about picking up a solid. Mm. Well, with with a solid, you can use the systematic. Mm. With, with a liquid, if you try and use the systematic, it will simply... Will escape your grasp, yes. It will slip through your fingers, and, of course, that's what happens. So, you know, systemic means are needed for liquid problems. And, yeah. uh, and when he talks about deconstructing this, there's that slight resonance with what people would think of as being left-wing thought or post-Marxist thought. But really, this attitude of deconstruction and system, like the systemic view is, is something that's just more about seeing the moving parts in context. Yeah. All of these institutions, you know, governments, departments, institutes of this, uh, quangos, etc., etc. There are all human inventions. So think of the BBC. Is the BBC, you know, like a table, like your body, like mm. the air? Is it a thing? Well, no. It's simply something that we have constructed in our minds. Mm. And the BBC as an institution is a fantastic institution, but the way in which it operates in some respects has gone awry. In particular, the way it's become a semi-government controlled news organisation. Now, we need to reinvent it. 
We don't need to destroy the BBC as an institution, as a value. We need to deconstruct it and reconstruct it. And that pretty much goes for every part of the system of government. And just understanding that these things, they're not permanent. Mm. They're just inventions of the mind. Institutions always need refreshing. You know, we're seeing at present SAGE, the government's advisory committee in relation to COVID-19. Actually, the way it's been conducting its business, it's too large, it's unwieldy, it's, you know, supposedly independent advice, well, it's got loads of government officials on it. The scientists seem to get chopped and changed depending on whether they're signing up to uh, the government's view or not. So a former head of SAGE has set up a parallel SAGE. You know, so that institution has partially been deconstructed and reconstructed over here. Now, that's all outside of the standard system. But in many respects, this is something very important that we should think about because we all have the opportunity where, for example, our local council isn't working to think about, well, how can we get things to work in different ways? What institutions can we uh, set up. There's talk in Minneapolis about essentially scrapping the police department because that institution has become so set in its ways and actually essentially irreformable mm. that we need to scrap it and then set up policing in a new or partially similar way. John Peel's original idea in setting up a police force was ultimately that the ideal would be a citizen militia, that everybody is a policeman, but not mm. everybody has the time, so we have the police. Mm. I think that ideal is, we're quite a long way from that. I think the closest you might get to it is countries where there's a military service or a compulsory social service, where there's a training in how you mm. engage I don't know if that would ever happen in the UK or whether it would be desirable. I mean, absolutely. And then indeed, interestingly, uh, again, in Switzerland, they have national service. They had a referendum as to whether to stop national service. And they do referendums properly there. And they decided to continue with national service. Democratic decision. I think it was quite a uh, hefty majority as well, but don't quote me on that. Presumably Um, all the people voting had already done national service. Yeah, you could argue, well, should it have been restricted to people pre or post? But of course, the people who have already done it have seen the value of it. And some of the value is to create vertical connections right through classes, occupations, locations. So it's quite a cementing, a connecting, Mm. a relationship building process beyond we need an army, beyond we need to train people at this age. So, yeah, I think there's a very strong case for that. One thing that Julian mentioned was this idea of social learning and specifically the action inquiry, which clearly is the beginnings of cultivating the kinds of culture we're talking about within institutions. Could you just sort of walk me through what exactly action inquiry is and why social learning is so important? Well, it's relating back to some of the things we've talked about earlier, knowing in action and, you know, STIP being systems thinking in practice and practice being theory-informed practice. So 
what we're now going to do in an action inquiry is we're going to, I mean, take his set of circumstances. It's a particular place. It's a particular town or, or part of a city. We are going to engage with the people in that place, both the people who are having multiple problems and those that are dealing with them and friends and relations and the community and business and so on and so forth to say, okay, let's take a particular set of circumstances. Let's take something that's happening now Mm. and let's go and see what is happening and Are there learnings that come from that understanding? Are there insights that flow out of that understanding? Can we see the levers for change, potential ways of improving things? And as we see them, then let's apply them. And by the way, make damn sure you have very good feedback. To use Julian's word, I mean, we want government to provide an authorizing environment. So in other words, people like Lane Kelly Chase, but all sorts of other people in all sorts of other fields are authorised to engage in this process, which we know works and will lead to improvement. Yeah, it's authorising. I get the feeling there's a, um, a convergence again um, with the world of business in terms of this thing of building community and building culture and you know you hear a lot how culture is so important to an organization and Mm. it sounds to me that what julian is doing in his action inquiry is is being quite deliberate in trying to explore and and foster a a culture through this action inquiry yeah exactly and and to foster relationships i mean you know so often it's the relationships which are all important in the Mm -hmm. system to foster networks to foster people just getting to know each other Mm -hmm. actually how do you get a high performing team well you create a social group it's interesting from the point of view of julian's talk that he talks about a shift in in their perspective which presumably came out of those kinds of conversations and he talks about how they are modeling change within their organization and very important because if all you do you know the do as i say don't do as i do Mm. i mean that's the way you are then there's an ethos that needs to extend out of you and your organization and connect with the circumstances that we've been talking about and actually if at the end of the day you know you've got a command and control mindset and you're instructing people down there to do systems thinking according to this cookbook, then you've almost destroyed it before you start. Mm. The more important point, I think, is that in applying this stuff to yourself, Mm. and, you know, hands up, I mean, it's challenging doing this. In applying this stuff to yourself and the way your organisation works, you will learn more about this stuff, Mm. and therefore you'll become a better practitioner. One of the early discoveries of New Labour government in 97, roughly, 98, was that some of the the most difficult families, and this would include some of the people that Blaine Kelly Chase connects with, were costing 250000 a year 
Bear in mind, this is 20 odd years ago, 250,000 a year of public expenditure was going into one single family, and this was not unusual. So in other words, fast resource, I mean, you know, health services, benefits, crime, policing, uh, social services, all going in. So fast resource going in, Mm. and yet because they're all siloed, so they're not particularly Mm. talking to each other because they're all command and control, because they're all sending down, you know, one size fits all, bureaucratic solutions from the centre, they weren't getting any better. They were still Mm. absolutely horrible. And in many respects, it would have been better just to give them the, the quarter of a million and you probably would have got much better result. That comes up in, in philanthropy across the world. There's this idea of just giving money directly to people rather than trying to yeah. give it through organisations. Um, but it, it's like with quantitative easing, where typically the money went into the banking system and from the banking system, in effect, it went into... Uh, share prices and house prices. In Australia, they just gave the money direct to the people. Here you are. This is called quantitative easing. Now you go and do the easing. And of course, there's far greater equality. So it was equalised, 250 Mm. quid for each person for the sake of argument. The problem with putting it into the banking system, which then, and the Bank of England did a report that showed that the impact of quantitative easing on share prices and house prices was to increase them by about 25%. So that money is all going to people with wealth. Mm. If you own a house, tick. If you don't yeah. own a house, bad luck. Same with shares. So that form of quantity in, increases inequality. Like with the quarter of a million to each of these difficult families, it would have been better to do none of that and actually give them a sum of money. Is this a good time to talk about Relate? Because really you have quite a, a deep appreciation of, of, of Relate how, how did you get involved and what, what was your sort of... Yeah, well, I, I did, this was in the yeah. 80, early days of my consultancy and a project came in to Coopers and Librand, as it was then, and to do a review of the National Marriage Guidance Council. I got a bit of a reputation for doing interesting bodies, but also having some sensitivity to those interesting bodies. So I went off and did the project. And quite often in those days, the answer, I'm afraid, was to replace, I think it was called, no, 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 replace the head, I'm afraid. We got onto the system later, but the people there, they didn't talk to each other. So I went round and asked each of them, what do you think of the director? And they all said, no, he has been good, but it's time for him to go. So I then produced a report that said, well, the good news is you all think the same. You all want him to go. So that wasn't too complicated. They then asked me to come on the board as a volunteer, as a trustee, um, which was sort of another job aside from the day job. So I went and did that. And then partly as a result of the consultancy, but also a lot of other work that went on, there was a need to change the model because mm. Relate classically had come out of Vickers parlours on a Sunday afternoon when, oh, uh, you know, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, some marital difficulties, come into the uh, rectory this afternoon and have tea with the Vickers wife, it would classically be. Out of that stemmed uh, the National Marriage Guidance Council and the training of good people and true out of the street, I mean, in the early days, Vickers' wives, in techniques of relationship counselling. 
and it was all free. But we got to the stage now where demand for services was going through the roof. The way we did those services, the way we engaged uh, needed to change. The relationship, the governance was absolutely fundamental. It still is a federation of centres with the national organisation serving the centres mm. rather than running the centres. But so is that, that's quite a good model, is it, for how these things can work? It's classic. What do you want to do at the centre? What do you want to do locally? And actually, the place you start is locally with, in this case, these relate centres. And now what do we want to do common across the Federation because it's cheaper or Mm. quicker or more efficient or because that's something we need to do? This was exactly the same as Switzerland was set up from its cantons and it's one of the most democratic and highest performing systems of governing in the world. And we so often start from the centre. All functions, controls, power is Mm. at the centre. Now, what shall we give you? um, Oh, Scotland or Wales. Or what shall we give you? Loughborough, you know, and so Mm. on. Start from the bottom and only do those things at the centre. This is, the Swiss constitution says that, only do those things at the federation level, which can't be done at the local level or because of reasons of cost and efficiency. Mm. So one of the crucial things that you find in the quality of service that Relate provides is the training and the professional standards and development of the councillors. Mm. Well, of course, you know, who's actually doing the doing? Yeah. It's the councillor. Resolving conflict, handling conflicts is an absolute fundamental, crucial part of life mm. and indeed an absolute fundamental, crucial part of relationships. When things of the Dalai Lama with Reagan and Gorbachev at the highest level and at the most obscure local level, am I right in thinking that there's a sort of a fundamental logic there that pervades the ideal of good governance or of things working well? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of almost classic, isn't it? Our ability to talk to each other, to hear each other, to understand each other, to appreciate each other's perspectives... And it may be quite conflictual, those positions, but as a result of that, we then start to think. We may change our thinking. We may come to a different place. We may get some extra information. And we may find, as people often do, that actually the conflict was built from something very, very different. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening to the Hidden Power podcast. And of course, you will find further links in the show notes. In the next episode, John Norton, technology columnist at the Observer newspaper on governance in that great wild west of our era, cyberspace. So I hope you'll join us then. Goodbye. Goodbye.